0: Amen. Please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 6. As we turn there to Exodus, I want to remind you that there are some sermon notes on the media rack in the back of the uh, worship center. And then um, I intend to help remind us periodically about these notes that are located by the welcome desk in the tower that is to my right. These are children's notes, um, which I think can be helpful for the children that are learning to stay in the um, regular worship service. And they give opportunity, I hope, for ongoing conversation about the Bible study between parents and children. Exodus chapter 6, and we'll start reading today in verse 2. Exodus 6 and verse number 2, the word of the Lord says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, And gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This concludes the reading of the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated and children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Covenant relationships are not necessarily rare, but they are various in their significance. We have all sorts of covenant relationships. Uh, every week when we show up at our job, our place of employment, we are engaging in covenant relationship. That promise is, I will work this week, and at the end, you will pay me. That's a covenant relationship. Now, just let me venture an illustration. If you went in to work on Monday and there was murmuring that the company had lost all resource and had become delinquent in their expenditures and in their debts, you would have concern for the substance of your covenant arrangement. Am I still going to get paid knowing that My employer might be unable to honor the terms of our agreement. More vividly, we live in marriage relationships. We see them in our culture and they are covenant relationships. And there might be times where we're tempted to doubt the terms of our covenant marriage relationship because there's something about the person who we are in covenant with that has raised concern. That's the nature of our study this morning with Exodus. Moses has an unsubstantiated doubt that God's going to keep his covenant. Moses is not sure that everything that had been promised to him can now happen. And I want to take this text and a title I've given to this sermon, God's Covenant Assurance. And I'm confident and prayerful that the Scripture is going to bless us with two assurances and one warning. And those will be our three points. Two assurances and one warning. God will assure His people that He keeps His covenant by two things. And then we'll be reminded from the, the human audience, there is something that is common for all of us, That will not give us covenant assurance. But sometimes it certainly demands our attention. So God here in this text is doing what we we see often. And that is giving his messenger Moses an experience that is similar to the people he's gone to minister to. So Moses is experiencing, enduring, needing to learn to trust God. For this very same thing that Moses is called to speak and to do to the people. So there's no hierarchy between Moses and the rest of the people of Israel. God is teaching them and growing them and providing for them. Moses is going through the hardship of being accused. He's struggling with being blamed for the new struggle in slavery. So what does Moses do? He turns his finger toward God and blames God. The Lord, however, is patiently reassuring his purpose and all the promises he had made to Moses that they not only would happen, but by God's mighty hand, they would happen in vivid way. Moses has already told God has already told Moses that Pharaoh not only was going to let the people go, he was going to push the people out now. Today, God begins to reveal to Moses in this text why Pharaoh would ever push the people out. So, what is the ground of covenant assurance and what is not? As you sit here today, I suppose the question is this. Do you have an unwavering confidence that the God who has promised is faithful? Every promise to you in Christ is certain. That's the question. And and if I may, I would encourage you not to evaluate that certainty based on your verbal agreement, but based on your functional testimony. Verbal agreements are much easier to give. But function. Like on a really, really hard Thursday afternoon. When everything seems to point your soul toward despair, anger, impatience, frustration. Can you look to the certainty of the promise of God in Christ and say, whatever, it's just circumstances. I'm absolutely certain of the promises of God, and therefore my joy survives this weekday. So I, I would just encourage you right now as you sit under the instruction of Scripture to be careful not to evaluate your readiness to persevere well based on verbal affirmation, or rather based on functional evidence. That to me is a little more convicting in my life. So I want to take you through what I think the Lord provides us with here. Two means of being assured that God will keep his promise. And then one that is not a means of assurance, but is a threat, a distraction to our assurance. Okay, let's get started with them. The first one is this. When it comes to saying to your soul in function, am I confident that all of the blessings that i have heard promised by god are guaranteed to me in christ Am I confident the first assurance that you should be confident comes from the very name of god himself who is the covenant maker who is the covenant maker So let's look at covenant assurance based on God's name in verses 2 through 4. Look right away at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. He explains the Lord being the God of the patriarchs, the God who the patriarchs worshipped by his name, and the God who established the patriarchal promise, including descendants and land. This is the first time in Exodus that God says these words. I am the Lord. You remember that he introduced himself previously as the I am. The self-existent, self-contained. The one who causes because he causes. But here for the first time, he says, I am Yahweh. Now, it's the first time in Exodus, but it's not the first time in the Pentateuch. It's not the first time in Scripture In fact, if you'd like, you could turn your Bible back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7 is the first time we see God saying, I am Yahweh. And then look, as you get to Genesis 15, look with me at verse 13. Genesis 15, 13 is a brief account of the Exodus. It is God saying, This is what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to be. And this was the promise established by the name of God. Genesis 15, 13 says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. A very brief promise... That God was going to deliver them, was not caught off guard by their time in slavery and bondage. What the patriarchs had trusted would one day happen was already underway, and God encourages Moses to believe it. Look at verse 3. God explains to Moses something that had been um, implied, it had been witnessed. But here it's declared. Who is God? Who is the Lord, Yahweh? Well, verse 3 explains that he is the almighty God. Moses had witnessed this. Moses had lived through this. But here God says plainly to Moses, I am the almighty God, the El Shaddai. As Moses is tempted to question the certainty of the promise. God comes to Moses and says, whenever you want to think about salvation, you have to start by thinking about me. Alec Morcher, who's a commentator, writes this. God sent Moses to Egypt. To declare a nature, not a name. Pause, quote. Moses' intent with Pharaoh is not to teach him about a new deity, but to teach everyone the nature of Yahweh. Not a name, but a nature. Resuming the quote, It is a name that they knew, but the nature... They were about to be shown. That is precisely what God says here in verse 3. He goes on to say the exodus is a large scale of what Mount Moriah was on a smaller scale. Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham has been told to sacrifice his only son. And God saves Isaac and delivers a substitute, a ram. Exodus is a bigger scale story just like that one. Just like God provided a ram, God will also provide a lamb for the Passover. Montier says this, There is no further truth about God that is ever revealed. you following that. I I agree, and that resonates with me. In other words, if we had these two books of the Pentateuch, you would have all that is revealed about who God is already. Now, these things both point to something that is eternally significant. That is the substitute of Jesus Christ at Calvary. But learning about God can be done entirely through that Genesis account and this Exodus account. God intervenes in our hopelessness and produces salvation. And to repeat the quote, there is no further truth about God ever to be revealed. Do we get more details? Do we get reassuring information? Absolutely. The whole canon of Scripture is revealing to us these wonderful truths about God. But not further than they are revealed at Moriah. Not further than they are revealed in the Exodus. When we at last meet the Lord in the air, it will be... To our confession that once again God has done what he promised to do. He has come down to Egypt to redeem his people. For this is his name. Salvation begins and, and I would add ends with knowing God. But for this text, listening to the narrative, listening to God talk to Moses... I need you to understand that salvation begins with knowing God. There are all sorts of perils if we presume that salvation begins anywhere other than God. And I'm not talking about means of salvation. Uh... Forgive me up in the tech booth, but I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I think that's Cindy. Okay, Cindy, could you go back to our second hymn for this morning, our second song? Um, I know you're completely capable, but you're also um, not giving any notice. And that's okay. Okay, that's okay if it's over top. Yeah, keep going. Advance a few apologize for the spontaneity. Uh, let's go slow. Keep going. Hold, hold on. Let's start here. Okay, as it relates to this, Moses is hearing from God a, the same truth that we sang not 20 minutes ago in this hymn. Sometimes it's called the order salutis. Or the the order of salvation. Salvation begins with God. And this song is a gift to the church for, for a long time. As Charles Wesley wrote this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. Next slide please. My chains fell off. Only then when light burst into my dungeon, my heart was free. Because I had been liberated, ransomed from slavery, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me? That is a testimony of Exodus 6. Thank you so much, Cindy. That is a testimony of Exodus 6. When Moses was tempted to doubt whether salvation could happen, God takes Moses by the chubby cheeks. We assume from Scripture he had chubby cheeks. God takes Moses by the chubby cheeks and said, remember who I am. And I would commend that to all of us. Remember who I am. Galatians 4.8 Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who That by nature are not gods. Formerly, when you didn't know God, then other authorities, other delights, kept you in bondage. But knowing God is where salvation begins. And that is God evangelizing to the heart of Moses. That's why I would say to all of us, but especially children, as you handle your Bible, and as your parents talk about how important Bible reading is, and as our church gives out Bibles to third graders, we are expressing the priority, the treasure that is the Word of God. But as you handle the Word of God, I want you to know the most important thing anyone should read in the Bible is who God is. The most important thing we should ever see in our Bible is who God is. First he says to those doubting, look at me. Then he says, Look at my promises. Hebrews 6 13. When God could swear that his promises were true, by nothing greater, he swore by himself. When he could swear by nothing more, that definitely his promises are all guaranteed, he swore by himself. Let's move then to the second one. He says to Moses, this is my name. And then he says to Moses, and this is what I'm like. Covenant assurance based on God's mercy. Verse 5. Moreover, so building on the previous revelation, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians have as slaves, and I have have remembered my covenant. I will pour out mercy as I've promised to do. Verse 5 points our attention back to chapter 2 verse 24 where God told Moses I have heard I have remembered these are ways of God saying I will respond I will act relative to my promise Genesis 15 to Abraham I have not forgotten I remember I have promised to save my people now, in verses 6 through 8, God is going to deliver to Moses eight elements of his promise. He's going to give him, did I just say eight? In verses 6 through 8, I apologize, there are seven elements of his promise. Let's, let's look at them quickly. We'll walk through these seven and you'll see them. In verses 6, 7, and 8. And if you would like to note them, you can connect almost all seven with the word and. Almost. But there will be two that you'll miss. Almost all of them can be connected with the word and. I am Yahweh. Verse 6. And... I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. First, God says in his reiterated promise, according to his mercy, I will bring you out. I will. It's really important for us to know that Moses won't, that Pharaoh won't, that certainly the astute faith of the Israelite people won't, but the Lord Himself will. Second, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. Not only is it God who will, but what He will do is deliver to free them. Again, pointing back to uh, the, the hymn that we just noted from this morning, Wesley confesses, That his life was like bondage in chains in a dungeon. And God promises to free his people. I will save you. I'll rescue you. God the Savior will come and save his people. Thirdly, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In mercy... God Himself makes promise to save by His outstretched arm. An arm that we've already heard as significant to the promise. Pharaoh won't be persuaded, but a strong arm will persuade him. And then this verse goes on to say, With mighty acts of judgment. The strong outstretched arm will flex, and mighty acts of judgment will happen. Here is God telling Moses, Plagues are coming on the people. God will dole out His judgment against Egypt. And then fourthly, verse 7, I will take you to be My people. Special declaration of familial, covenant, uniqueness. You will be My people. God is saying, in connection with, I will take you to be my people, and fifthly, I will be your God. He is saying, I will be your kinsman redeemer. I will redeem you out of the hand of your enemy, myself, as a father to children. And I will be your God. He expresses here that there will be a vivid display of covenantal relationship between himself and these people. There will be some mark that will signify you are mine and I am yours. And then, at the end of verse 7, And... You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And it would be good for us to ask, when? When will the people learn that it is the Lord their God who brought them out from under the burdens of of the Egyptians? When? Plainly, at Sinai. At Sinai, the, the promise will receive its consummation and they will have a mark on them called the law. They will be marked as His people and Him as their covenant-keeping God. At Sinai, all that has been promised will mark the people. The process begins with the promise all the way back in Genesis 15. First delivered to Abram. And then again delivered here to Moses. And repeated here to Moses. And that promise. And the gift of it. Will be received at Sinai. And then verse 8. I will bring you into the land. That I swore to give Abraham. To Isaac and to Jacob. And I know we said this already. But I don't want you to assume. That there are three unique promises. Given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In fact. Wonderfully, the same promise is repeated three times to each of them. Note here that the promise includes a singular possession of land, but the promise of possession of land is delivered three times to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will bring you to the land of covenant promise that I swore to give. The word picture is really powerful. Literally, you have God describing to Moses, "I stood up and raised my right hand and made oath to Abraham." That's that is literally the word picture of what he says. I swore to him. He took oath to Abraham, "I'm going to do this." Before there was bondage, before there was Joseph, before there was 400 years in captivity. God raised his right hand and said, even before the things that will lead you to Egypt happen, I promise I'm going to bring you out into this land that I promised. And he says, I will give it to you as a possession. And then we have this wonderful bookend where he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. He says it. To Moses to establish this is my name then he says it to Moses to begin the promises and to end the promises these words are significant not just theologically but for two different reasons first when he says I am the Lord it gives identification of the giver of the covenant Second, when he says, I am the Lord, it is a statement of identity. Not just theoretical identity, but relationship identity. It invites the hearer to say, I am connected with the promise maker. I know him personally. He's not just a God. He is our God. I want to say just real briefly, but I think significantly, um, I don't know exactly how to say it in a, um, a non, like, difficult way Uh, but here's what I want to say and the spirit will be our teacher when we're confused about a covenant and covenant relationship I think we become easy prey for covenant doubting and here's what I mean When, when I just said that last part of his promise I am your God. You are my people. My name is the Lord. Yahweh. Israel's God. That was reassuring to them because they understood that the covenant wasn't vague. The covenant wasn't, I'll be somebody's God someday, somewhere. Thank you. How do I sleep better now? He doesn't say that. God assures His people with covenant-specific identity. He is theirs and they are His. And that is covenant. I have said to you often, as it relates to the covenant of your marriage, it does not reassure your spouse if you say something like, Honey... I love you so deeply. Like I love all women. Don't do that. Our counseling schedule would fill up really fast. And I hope that by that little humorous illustration, you can see the nature of assurance. And God talks personally to his people and repeats his promise. If salvation starts with God's name, his nature, his identity, then it depends on his mercy. Psalm thirteen five. But I have trusted in your mercy and my heart rejoices in salvation. I have trusted in your mercy and my heart rejoices in salvation. All of the confidence in God's promise rests in his name and his nature. But what causes us to struggle? Because these two things, the church would raise their hands and say, yes! What is God like? And does he pour out mercy on us? And we would say, yes, yes, yes. And then There's just a little bit more that I want us to learn from this text in verses 9 through 12. And the point that I've given this third one, we're assured by his name. We are assured by his mercy. We are not assured by promising circumstances. What about the plight of events around us? How do they affect us when it comes to a joyful and and persevering confidence in God's promise? How does the tragedy, how does the heartache, how does the diagnosis, how does the financial burden affect our confidence and our joy in God's promises? So look at verse 9 through 12 especially in verse 9 it's really plain here Moses spoke thus to the people so so God reassures Moses go tell them and he does he goes back and he spoke all of this to the people but they did not listen to Moses why they don't call into question his nature they don't say he doesn't care about us they worshiped already because they found out he cared about them why do the people not believe Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The people said, how can these blessings be ours? Look around you. This is a horrible curse. And that's exactly what we could say. How can... God's covenant to me be familial, be be a child and a father covenant, and I have this much heartache and this much despair and this much struggle. That's what happened to them. And it could happen to us. Maybe it does. Often. Maybe it is right now happening to us. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 10, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let the people of Israel go out of the land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. The people have who have everything to gain, they don't believe it. Now you want me to go to the ruler who has everything to lose and somehow convince him? I can't. My Communication is like uncircumcised communication. Again, pretty vivid description. Similar to what he had already said about, I'm not good at speaking. Moses is not saying that he has some speech defect, but rather when he says I'm slow of speech or I have an uncircumcised mouth, he says, I'm not good enough, I'm not clean enough, I'm not prepared to go and do this thing. And part of us is sympathetic with the way Moses brings up, I'm, I'm not worthy, I'm not ready, I'm not obedient enough, I'm not faithful enough. Because remember what happened at the campsite? God almost executed judgment unto death. Because Moses had not been faithful enough, obedient enough, good enough. And so here he kind of looks back at God and says, I can't go back to Pharaoh. I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared to go back. Doug Stewart writes, faith is often diminished by hardship Because emotion plays a powerful part in human thinking. And thinking becomes increasingly pessimistic when any sort of pain is constant. We can follow that, right? We become pessimistic. When any sort of pain seems unrelenting. And faith can be diminished in the circumstance. So I, I want to take you to two passages. Now, to finish our time together this morning, I want to take you to two passages. And I going to invite you to go, the first one is to Ephesians. Moses interjects doubt in covenant faithfulness when he considers the circumstance. Namely, here, as he says, my my communication is like uncircumcised, unclean, unfit, unprepared. I am the reason that you're not going to be able to keep your promise. And let me say, fellow sinner, if that thought is on your mind... My unfaithfulness is going to break the promise. Because you are a God and we are your people. But we are not fit people. And so I think this whole relationship is going to crumble. Then I want to take you to Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, we have this introduction to humanity, to all of us. Paul is writing in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Okay. Skip to chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world functionally there was no distinction between you and anybody else following even the prince of the power of the air doing the bidding of satan the spirit that is now at work in all the sons of obedience was working in disobedience it was working in you among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of Of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. So we have this first text that tells us. Like Moses would say. I'm unclean. I'm unfit. There can be no promise kept. There can be no promise accomplished if I'm involved. And God says, this is who you were, but I am rich in mercy. Now let's go to another one. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. You say, okay, I understand. God's salvation overflows my unworthiness. It's true. What about these circumstances that we're living in? If God wasn't trying to get my attention for being unworthy, then why is he allowing so many horrible things? Aren't aren't these tragedies meant to be God's warning that he's actually unhappy with me? Let's see if Romans 8 can help protect us. Verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. So we know right away in the context, there's suffering for people who are anticipating and waiting for everlasting glory. Look down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love? uh, Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Romans 8.35 Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, God, we are being killed all day. We are perceived to be regarded as sheep led to slaughter. Your people are having their throats slit. No. Even in those things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we imagine that our personal sinfulness can undo the covenant promise of God, we're biblically mistaken. If we can imagine that our circumstances, persecution, death, peril, famine are undoing the covenant promises of God, we are biblically mistaken. Our assurance of the promise does not rest in our circumstance. It does rest in the name of God and the nature of God who is merciful. God is merciful. God is not like the gods of Canaan. Our God is a living God He is a God who acts in salvation. In Exodus 3, he had told Moses this is exactly what he would do. He said, I have seen the people. I have heard their prayer. I will come down and deliver them. I am the God who promised, and therefore I will save them. He is the God who has promised to us that in Christ... He is saving his people and we will be saved for sure because of his name and his nature, but not our circumstance. Your circumstance is in the curse. And there are a lot of days when the circumstance seems like God must be mad. But he who has promised is faithful. And we conclude, as this scripture ministers by the Spirit to our heart, that the suffering of the present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory to come. Let's pray. Father God, you have ministered to your people today from thousands of years ago. We find sadly in ourselves so many similarities to Moses. Excuse making and fear and doubt. And your faithful ministry, your faithful word to him establishes for us, for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear, that you are the guarantee of your covenant promises. And that peril and tragedy are common in this life. But you who have promised is faithful. And so I pray that by the ministry of your word, by the indwelling spirit, by the blessed hope of the gospel, and the fellowship of your body, of being a part of the church, that we would persevere. Cast off the weight and sin of doubt and progress forward to the mark of the high calling of Christ. To have a, a faith that is being fortified and matured by your ministry to us in this new life in Christ. So that we would see the covenant promise the way our Savior saw and acted in covenant promise. Jesus walks from the upper room to the garden. And prays with confidence the high priestly prayer. Thinking of others with a faith unwavering praising in expectation, looking forward to the restoration of the eternal glory that was his in heaven. So cause us, Lord, to walk in Christ by faith, not by sight, seeing you, the source of our confidence. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.